It's the 17th of July, 1856. 13-year-old Constance Kent has locked herself in the outdoor privy or toilet, hidden away in the shrubbery of her family's large Georgian home on Road Hill in Wiltshire. It's the same privy where, in four years' time, her half-brother Savile will be found murdered. But Savile hasn't been born yet. Constance's stepmother, Mary, is eight months pregnant with him, just as she would be eight months pregnant with another baby when Savile is killed. Constance lifts a long tress of hair away from her head and hacks away at it with a pair of scissors. She drops the handful of hair into the privy, watching it disappear into the stinking vault below. It's like she's throwing away a part of herself. Constance carries on cutting until her head feels light all over. She rubs her hand over her scalp for loose strands and snips them off too. So, this is what it feels like to be a boy? Not quite. Constance quickly steps out of her dress and takes off her petticoat, throwing them down into the privy. Next, she puts on a set of clothes belonging to her brother William. She's had to adjust them so that they fit, and they're still a little tight in places. Constance emerges into the daylight, where 11-year-old William is keeping watch. At first, William giggles when he sees the transformation that has come over his sister. But Constance's intense glare silences him. This is not a game. They've talked it over many times, but now it's actually happening. They're running away to Bristol, where they'll board a ship and go to sea as cabin boys. They're following in the footsteps of their older brother Edward, who joined the Merchant Navy at the age of 18. His ship went down in 1854, and everyone thought him lost, but by some miracle he survived. That's the kind of life that Constance longs for, a life of drama and excitement. Edward is Constance's hero. She can still remember his rage when he came home and found out that their father had married the governess, Mary Pratt. The fierce emotions that Edward unleashed thrilled Constance. She had wanted him to strike father, or to go even further and kill the new Mrs. Kent. That'd serve her right. In the event, Edward stormed off and vowed he would never set foot in the house again. To begin with, their spirits are high. It's a warm summer's day. The sun is shining, bees buzz gently among the hedgerow flowers, and a pair of red admiral butterflies show them the way. But it isn't long before William starts complaining. It's too hot, he's thirsty, his feet hurt, he's tired, he wants to go home. She reminds him that home is where that woman is. Does he really want to go back to her? William doesn't answer. For Constance, the stakes are higher. This is a matter of life or death. She has to escape the life she hates and the woman who is responsible for all her sufferings, the cold-hearted schemer who took her mother's place. And if she doesn't get away, well, she won't answer for what she'll do. 
How much further, William wants to know. It's ten miles to Bath, and they've been walking for no more than half an hour. Constance calculates that they must have gone about a mile already. Hopefully, they'll get there before nightfall. They arrive at the Greyhound Hotel in Bath by evening. Constance does all the talking, lowering the pitch of her voice so that she sounds like an adolescent boy. She demands food and beds for the night. It's how she imagines sailors speak, barking out surly orders and not standing for any nonsense. The effect is undermined when William bursts into tears. The landlady guesses straight away that she has a couple of runaways on her hands. She takes pity on William and gives him a bed at the hotel, but she's not impressed with the other boy's rude manners. The police are sent for, and Constance spends the night at the station. She's held in the common detention room with the other prisoners. She tells herself she's not frightened. If she is, she's determined not to show it. She won't let on who she really is and keeps up the pretense of being a boy. One of the sergeants frowns at her as if he suspects the truth, but says nothing. She doesn't sleep much that night. Early next morning, her father's manservant arrives at the police station and identifies Constance. He's already picked up William from the hotel. The man complains that he's worn out three horses looking for them. He's not in a good mood, but Constance refuses to apologize. Back at Road Hill House, William is contrite. He apologizes for all the trouble he's caused. To Constance's disgust, he turns on the waterworks again. When it comes to Constance's turn to speak, she lifts her head haughtily and says nothing. They won't get any apology from her. But her father demands an explanation at least. How could she put them through this? Why did she do it? Constance sighs. I wished to be independent, is all she will say. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. no better feeling than a personal win and the state farm personal price plan can help you do just that 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On the afternoon of the 16th of July, 1860, Inspector Jonathan Witcher of Scotland Yard walks the short distance from Road Village to Road Hill House in the company of Superintendent Foley of the Wiltshire Police. Built from local limestone by a wealthy clothier in 1800, the solid three-story house sits back from the main road, overlooking the village from the top of Road Hill. The grounds are shielded from prying eyes by a screen of trees and a high fence. Samuel Kent is evidently a man who values his privacy. Witcher approaches the house along the curving drive. On his right is a shrubbery, where the outside privy for servants and tradesmen is located. It was here where three-year-old Savile's body was found. Superintendent Foley also discovered a piece of flannel in the privy, which led him to suspect the nursemaid Elizabeth Goff of being Savile's murderer, as she was the only one of the house's live-in female servants that the breast flannel fitted. This is the first major difference of opinion between Witcher and Foley. To Witcher's mind, the flannel was irrelevant. It could have been dropped in the privy at any time before Savile's murder, getting blood on it when the body was put there. Not only that, it was found in the waist beneath the privy and not on the splashboard where Savile's body had been left. But if he's right, why hasn't anybody admitted that the flannel was theirs? There's a simple reason for this, as far as Witcher is concerned. They may be afraid they will be accused of the murder if they do. For Witcher, a much more significant item of clothing is Constance Kent's missing nightdress, the nightdress she would have been wearing the night Savile was murdered. Despite being entered into the family's laundry notebook, the nightdress is unaccounted for. The laundress claims she never received it. The family insists she must have lost it. Superintendent Foley makes it clear that he doesn't approve of this line of investigation. As he sees it, there's really no need to bother the family with such impertinent questions. Haven't they suffered enough? But coming from a working-class background, Witcher is no respecter of a well-to-do family's feelings. Not where murder is involved. This is Witcher's very first day on the case, and he wastes no time in getting down to business. He's taken straight to the drawing room and shown the window and shutters, which were found open on the morning Savile's body was discovered. The detective points out that Savile's murderer can't have entered the house through this window, as the shutters were heavily barred on the inside. Not only that, the drawing room door was also locked, so they wouldn't have been able to gain access to the rest of the house. Next, Witcher heads upstairs to the top floor, where the children from Samuel Kent's first marriage and two servants sleep in cramped rooms beneath the attic. He notes that Constance and William are the only ones in the house to have bedrooms of their own, making it easier for them to come and go without anyone else noticing. 
making no secret of his suspicions, Witcher searches Constance's room. He finds a laundry list that itemizes everything she brought home from school, including three nightdresses. Witcher asks Constance to show them to him, already knowing that she can't produce all three. It's all part of his psychological method to put pressure on his suspect. For most 16-year-old girls, having your room searched and being brusquely interrogated by a detective from Scotland Yard would be intimidating. But Constance manages to keep her composure, coolly telling him, I have to. The other was lost at the wash the week after the murder. In his account of Savile's murder, the great crime of 1860, Joseph Stapleton writes that an unusual but evident combination of cool deliberation with fierce, almost maniacal passion is a feature in the case which may afford some help in the solution of the mystery. Stapleton is a local man. His work as a factory surgeon has brought him into professional contact with Samuel Kent. He is also one of Kent's friends and came to Roadhill House after the tragedy to offer his support. He knows the family well. This is what he has to say about the young Constance Kent. As she grew up, Constance manifested a strong, obstinate and determined will, and her conduct, even as a little child, gave evidence of an irritable and impassioned nature. The time she ran away with her brother William is given as an example of this. Could this impassioned nature cross the line into maniacal passion? In other words, does Stapleton believe Constance is her brother's murderer? He doesn't say as much, but it seems to be what he's hinting at. Joshua Parsons, the local doctor who conducted the post-mortem examination of Savile's body, is more outspoken. On Tuesday, July the 17th, Parsons tells Witcher that Constance Kent was affected with homicidal madness and goes on to say that he would not sleep in a house where Miss Constance was without having his door secured. This is a 16-year-old girl, remember. According to an anecdote in Stapleton's book, Parsons had confided to Stapleton and two other men that Mrs. Kent requested him to give a certificate under which Miss Constance Kent might be confined in a lunatic asylum. Witcher learns from Parsons that there is a history of mental illness in the family. This is confirmed by Stapleton, who writes that Samuel Kent's first wife, Mary Ann, first exhibited symptoms of insanity in 1836. The symptoms included delusions and confusion, or bewilderment of intellect in the language of the day. Kent was advised to place her under constant specialist care, but he refused. In fact, despite his wife's mental health problems, Kent carried on impregnating her with children. She gave birth to four babies in the five years between 1837 and 1842. None of them survived longer than six months. Even so, Samuel Kent had no qualms about continuing to put his wife under the ordeal and danger of childbirth. 
Constance was born in February 1844, William in July 1845. It's said that while she was pregnant with both these children, Mrs. Kent's mental health deteriorated sharply. Given his wife's fragile state of mind, Kent employed a governess to help with the childcare. This was Mary Pratt, whom he would marry after Mary Ann's death in 1852, though it was rumored that he was already having an improper relationship with her while his wife was still alive. Stapleton repeats another rumor, only to strenuously deny it, that Samuel Kent was responsible for his first wife's death. According to the record, she died from natural causes after a short illness at the age of 44. In his first few days at Road, Inspector Witcher, no doubt, hears all kinds of gossip about the Kent family. That Samuel Kent had killed the four babies who died in infancy. That a string of female servants had left the house in quick succession because of Kent's inappropriate behavior. That Kent's oldest son, Edward, was in fact Mary Pratt's lover, which explained his rage when he came home from sea to find his father had married her. Some went even further, saying that Edward was Savile's father, giving Samuel Kent a motive for killing the little boy. But it's evidence, not gossip, that Witcher is looking for. In particular, he's looking for Constance Kent's missing nightdress. It turns out that Dr. Parsons has something to say about this, too. Parsons was one of the first people at Road Hill House after Savile's body was discovered. After he had completed his medical examination, he joined in the search for clues. He saw Constance's nightdress on her bed that morning and noticed that it was clean, remarkably so. In Parsons' view, it was a fresh nightdress, not yet worn, and certainly not one that Constance had been sleeping in for the previous six nights. On Wednesday, the 18th of July, the third day of his investigation, Witcher travels to Bath to interview witnesses about Constance and William's escapade four years earlier. He wants to form a better understanding of Constance's state of mind by talking to people who saw her erratic behavior firsthand. For Witcher, the incident is clearly significant. He is particularly struck by the circumstances of the body being found in the same privy in which she cast her female apparel and hair before absconding from the home, as he writes in a report to his commanding officer at Scotland Yard. Later that same day, he takes the train to the market town of Warminster, about eight miles south of Road. There he speaks to 15-year-old Emma Moody, one of Constance's school friends. Witcher asks her about Constance's relationship with Little Savile. Emma answers, I have heard her say she disliked the child and pinched it, but it was done in fun. She was laughing when she said it. Witcher asks why Constance treated Savile like this. Emma's answer is, I believe it was through jealousy and because the parents showed great partiality. She continues, she said that the second family were much better treated than herself and her brother William. 
a picture is beginning to emerge of a resentful, unhappy, and yes, vindictive girl. By her own admission, she pinched Seville. But does that mean she's capable of killing him? Inspector Witcher clearly believes so. On Thursday the 19th of July, the morning sun glints off the surface of the River Froome as it runs alongside the grounds of Road Hill House. For most people, it's an idyllic setting, perfect for a spot of fly fishing or messing about in boats. To Inspector Witcher's eye, it's a good place to dispose of a murder weapon or any other incriminating evidence. A blood-stained nightdress, for instance. Following Witcher's request, the waters of the river are lowered by blocking the weir upstream. Men in boats begin to dredge the mud at the bottom with long rakes. The detective watches from the riverbank, keeping his thoughts to himself. But when the operation fails to discover any new evidence, he turns away in disappointment. Now he puts local police to work, searching the grounds of the house and the fields surrounding it. They are to leave no stone unturned in their hunt for evidence. Again, they come up with nothing. Despite his frustration, Witcher is still convinced that Constance Kent is the killer. The following day, Friday, July the 20th, he shares his suspicions with the local magistrates overseeing the case. Persuaded by his arguments, they instruct him to arrest Constance. But Witcher is reluctant, perhaps because he knows he doesn't yet have enough evidence to secure a conviction. There are other factors preying on his mind too as he explained in his report to Scotland Yard. I pointed out to them the unpleasant position such a course would place me in with the county police, especially as they held opinions opposed to mine as to who was the guilty party. But as he reports, the magistrates overruled him, stating that they wished the inquiries to be entirely in my hands. That afternoon, Inspector Witcher calls at Road Hill House and asks to see Constance Kent. When she appears before him in the drawing room, he says, I am a police officer and I hold a warrant for your apprehension, charging you with the murder of your brother, Francis Savile Kent. Constance breaks down in tears, crying, I am innocent, I am innocent. Wearing her funeral bonnet and mantle, Constance is taken in an open carriage to the Temperance Hall in Road to be questioned by magistrates. A small crowd has gathered outside the hall, including a number of reporters. They've heard a rumor that an arrest has been made. As the carriage approaches, the cry goes up. Tis Miss Constance. With her head bowed and face heavily veiled, Constance is escorted into the hall on Witcher's arm. According to the Times, she walked with a firm step but was in tears. The Bath Express gives a fuller description. She looks to be about 18 years of age, though it is said she is only 16. She is rather tall and stout, with a full face, which is very flushed, and a dimpled forehead. 
Her eye is peculiar, being very small and deep-set in her head, which perhaps leaves a somewhat unfavorable impression on the mind. Constance is seated in front of the magistrates, with Witcher on one side of her and Superintendent Wolfe of the Wiltshire Police on the other. Significantly, Superintendent Foley takes no part in Constance's arrest. The chairman of the magistrates asks, Your name is Miss Constance Kent? Constance's reply is a barely audible whisper. Yes. Next, Witcher is called upon to state the case against Constance. Everything hinges on the missing nightdress. The fact that Constance can't produce it is suspicious, but it's bad for Witcher too. He calls for an adjournment of a week to enable me to collect evidence to show the animus which the prisoner entertained towards the deceased and to search for the missing nightdress, which, if in existence, may possibly be found. His request is granted. Constance is taken to Devise's jail, about 15 miles away. In the meantime, the Froome Times reports that Roadhill House is turned over and emptied from garret to cellar in an attempt to find the nightdress, all to no avail. Witcher must face the possibility that he may never find it. Even so, he is determined to get to the bottom of its disappearance. He questions the housemaid, Sarah Cox, about what happened with the laundry that week after Sabo's murder. Cox tells him that Constance's nightdress was left on the landing outside her bedroom and that she took it to put with the rest of the washing. At that point, the nightdress was entered into the laundry book along with everything else. However, he now learns that after Cox had packed the washing into two baskets ready to go to the laundry, Constance came into the room where she was working. In Cox's words, she asked me if I would look in her slip pocket to see if she had left her purse there. Cox took out the slip, but couldn't find the purse. Constance now asked Cox to go downstairs and fetch her a glass of water. To Inspector Witcher, this is all extremely suspicious. He believes that Constance asked Cox to look for the purse so that she could see which of the two baskets her nightdress was in. She then sent Cox downstairs for the water so that she could retrieve it. According to Witcher's theory, this was not the nightdress she was wearing when she killed Savile, but a substitute one. Constance's problem was that she brought three nightdresses back from school. Now she only has two, having destroyed the bloodstained one she was wearing when she killed Savile. To cover this, Constance executed a very artful stratagem, in Witcher's words. The purpose was to make it look like the missing nightdress had been lost by the laundress. This was Witcher's theory. But could he prove it? On Friday the 27th of July, Constance is once again brought before the magistrates in the Temperance Hall at Road. The Times reports that she fell into her father's arms and kissed him. She then took the seat which had been provided for her 
and burst into tears. There is one important difference between Constance's appearance in front of the bench today and her last. This time, she is represented by a barrister from Bristol called Peter Edlin. By all accounts, he is a formidable advocate. The first witness is Elizabeth Goff, who is questioned by Edlin about Constance's relationship with her brother, Savile. Goff answers, I have never heard Constance say anything unkind to Savile. I have never seen her conduct herself otherwise than kindly towards him. This contradicts Inspector Witcher's star witness, Constance's school friend, Emma Moody. And when Emma is being taken through her evidence by the magistrate's clerk, Edlin repeatedly interrupts, saying, I submit that this is wrong. The examination is most unusual and improper. He even insinuates that Witcher has behaved in an underhand way by talking to Constance's school friends in the first place. Edlin effectively suppresses Emma's evidence and casts doubts on Witcher's methods. The audience is clearly on his side, as they show by their applause. Witcher must feel the case slipping away from him. Edlin begins his concluding speech by calling for the magistrates to release Constance Kent, claiming, There is not one tittle of evidence against this young lady. He argues that the case was not constructed on any tangible evidence, but upon the fact that a poultry bedgown was missing. Edlin even accuses Witcher of being motivated by the prospect of a reward, and says that the detective was baffled and annoyed by not finding a clue, and he caught at that which was no clue at all. The rousing speech concludes, A more unjust, a more improper, a more improbable case was never brought before any court of justice in any place. The audience applauds. The magistrates confer. Constance Kent is released. For Inspector Witcher, it's the end of his involvement in the Road Hill House murder. As he explains in his concluding report to Scotland Yard, the only further piece of evidence would be to find the nightdress, which I feared was destroyed. He returns to Scotland Yard a disappointed man though still convinced of Constance Kent's guilt. He is not the only one. The clerk of the magistrates writes both to the Home Secretary and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, saying, The magistrates are fully impressed with the idea that Miss Constance Kent is the guilty party and hope that evidence may yet be forthcoming to bring the perpetrator of the crime to justice. In the weeks that follow, Edlin's extraordinary personal attack on Witcher during the magistrate's hearing is taken up by the press. The Froome Times concludes that Witcher cannot expect to be looked on otherwise than with distrust. The Morning Star laments the frivolous, gossiping, and utterly vapid schoolgirl testimony which he built his case on, while the Bath Chronicle condemns his slender speculations. Witcher even comes under attack in Parliament, where one MP accuses him of arresting Constance upon the slightest possible grounds 
merely because one of her nightgowns happened to be missing. Some voices speak up in his defense, but the damage has been done. His reputation and career begin to decline. Even as late as 1863, Punch will mock him as Inspector Watcher of the Defective Police. In 1864, aged 49, Witcher leaves the force on medical grounds, suffering from a condition described at the time as a congestion of the brain. Today, we can't be sure exactly what is meant by this, but it seems to indicate mental health problems, possibly some kind of breakdown. Back in Road, suspicion, once again, turns on the nursemaid Elizabeth Goff. No longer with the family, she is arrested in Isleworth and brought before magistrates in Trowbridge on October the 1st, 1860. Goff's former employer, Mrs. Mary Kent, speaks in her defense. This girl, to the best of my belief, was particularly kind to the child and seemed very fond of him. He was very fond of her. One of the things that is held against Goff is that she did not seem sufficiently grief-stricken on the morning Savile was found dead. Mrs. Kent is asked about this. I can't tell whether she was much distressed that morning. I was too much occupied with my own and my husband's feelings. Ultimately, there is as little evidence against Elizabeth Goff as there was against Constance Kent. Perhaps even less. She too is released on bail of 100 pounds. As the Times puts it, if the late Edgar Poe had sat down to invent a tale of mystery, he could not have imagined anything more strange and perplexing. The matter remains still as dark as ever. It will be five years before the mystery is solved and no one will be more interested to know the solution than retired Inspector Jonathan Witcher, formerly of Scotland Yard. On Tuesday the 25th of April, 1865, Constance Kent arrives at Bow Street Magistrates Court near London's lively Covent Garden Market. She's 21 years old. Constance is accompanied by the two most important people in her life now, they are her spiritual parents, the Reverend Arthur Wagner and Catherine Green, the Lady Superior of St. Mary's Home in Brighton, a religious community where Constance has been living for the past two years. Although he's an Anglican priest, the Reverend Wagner retains some of the practices of the Catholic Church, including confession. Constance's face is veiled, making it hard for those she passes to judge her emotions. However, she's come to the courts today voluntarily as the result of a process that was set in motion when she began to prepare for her confirmation under the direction of Reverend Wagner. As part of that preparation, Constance has made a full confession of her sins. The small party is directed to a courtroom at the rear of the building where the Chief Magistrate of Bow, Sir Thomas Henry, presides. Constance hands Henry a letter and takes a seat while he reads it. 
Henry lays down the letter and addresses Constance. Am I to understand, Miss Kent, that you have given yourself up of your own free act and will? Yes, sir, replies Constance. Henry continues, Anything you may say here will be written down and may be used against you. Do you quite understand that? Yes, sir. The magistrate points to the letter that he has just read. Is this paper now produced before me, in your own handwriting, and written of your own free will? Without hesitating, Constance confirms, it is, sir. The magistrate bows his head. Then let the charge be entered in her own words. The clerk of court reads out Constance's brief notes in full. I, Constance Emily Kent, alone and unaided, on the night of the 29th of June, 1860, murdered at Road Hill House, Wiltshire, one Francis Savile Kent. Before the deed was done, no one knew of my intention, nor afterwards of my guilt. No one assisted me in the crime, nor in the evasion of discovery. The trial of Constance Kent is held at Salisbury Assizes on the 20th of July, 1865. Constance pleads guilty, but her voice is so quiet that she has to repeat her plea twice before it is heard. Constance Kent was 16 when she killed her brother. Under British law at the time, she will face the same penalty as every other murderer. The judge, Mr. Justice Wills, puts on the black cap that is traditionally worn when passing the death sentence. It is a highly charged moment. Up until this point, Constance has held it together. Now she breaks down, sobbing uncontrollably. Even the judge is overcome by emotion, tears streaming down his face as he addresses the prisoner. In his sentencing speech, Justice Wills calls on Queen Victoria to exercise her royal prerogative and overturn the sentence he is obliged by law to deliver. In the days after the trial, the Home Secretary, Sir George Grey, adds his voice to the calls for mercy. A week later, the sentence is changed to one of penal servitude for life. In the event, Constance will serve 20 years. On the 20th of August, 1865, a letter appears in the Times written by Dr. Charles Bucknell, a psychiatrist appointed by the court to assess Constance Kent's mental state before she stood trial. Writing at Constance's request, Bucknell fills in many of the details of the crime. He says that Constance killed Savile with a razor she took from her father's wardrobe, which she cleaned and returned after the murder. He tells how she lay awake in bed that night, waiting until she was sure everyone was asleep. Soon after midnight, she got up and went downstairs, opening the drawing room door and window shutters. She then went back upstairs and took Savile from the nursery. Holding him in one arm, she put on her galoshes and raised the drawing room window, taking him out to the privy. There, she lit a candle and placed it on the seat with Savile 
fast asleep on her shoulder the whole time. Then, in Dr. Bucknell's words, she inflicted the wound in the throat. She says that she thought the blood would never come and the child was not killed, so she thrust the razor into its left side and put the baby with the blanket round it into the vault. When she got back to her bedroom, she found that her nightgown only had two spots of blood on it, which she washed out using the water left in her basin. In the morning, the nightdress was dry and appeared superficially clean. However, the faint bloodstains were still visible when held up to the light. Fortunately for Constance, when Superintendent Foley and Dr. Parsons examined the nightdress, they didn't look too closely. Eventually, Constance burnt the nightdress in her own room. To cover the shortfall, she came up with the ruse that Witcher had worked out, sending the maid Sarah Cox for a glass of water so that she could take back the clean nightdress and throw the blame for the missing garment on the laundress. At last, Witcher is vindicated, his theory proven correct. But why did she do it? This is the question everyone wants answered. It is not until 1878, 13 years after his letter to the Times, that Buckner will finally reveal what he describes as the real and dreadful motive in a lecture on insanity to the Royal College of Physicians. He tells his audience about the first Mrs. Kent's decline into madness and how she was isolated from the family living in seclusion in her room while a high-spirited governess took over the management of the house. This is Mary Pratt, who will eventually marry Samuel Kent after his first wife dies. Bucknell relates how the second Mrs. Kent used to make disparaging remarks about her predecessor. In his words, little dreaming, poor lady, of the fund of rage and revengeful feeling she was storing up in the heart of her young stepdaughter. It was to escape her stepmother's hated presence that Constance ran away to Bath at the age of 13. After she was brought back, she thought of poisoning her stepmother, but that, on reflection, she felt would be no real punishment. And then it was that she determined to murder the poor lady's boy. Her motive, then, was to inflict as much pain as possible on her stepmother. On the 18th of July, 1885, Constance Kent is released on license from Fulham Prison after serving a full 20 years in jail. She's 45 years old. Reverend Wagner, to whom she had confessed her terrible crime, again takes her under his wing finding her a place in a religious community in Sussex. In 1886, however, she leaves England for Australia, travelling under the name Emily Kay. She joins her brother William and his family, who emigrated in 1884. Accompanying Constance on the voyage is her half-sister Eveline, now 28, who was the baby sleeping in the nursery when Savile was taken and 25-year-old Florence Kent, another half-sister born after Savile's death. In Australia, they will join Mary Amelia, 
once the toddler who was sleeping in her parents' room that night, and Ackland, the baby Mary Kent was pregnant with when Savile was murdered. The family, torn apart by Constance's crime, comes together around her. There is one final footnote to the story. In 1928, an anonymous 3,000-word letter is sent to the publishers of a true crime book about the Road Hill House murder. The letter is postmarked Sydney, Australia, which is where Constance is now living. It's clearly written by someone who had intimate knowledge of life at Road Hill House and bears a number of similarities to other letters known to have been written by Constance. The letter outlines the division caused in the family by the arrival of the governess, Mary Pratt, and describes how, one morning, Edward Kent discovered his father coming out of her bedroom. The now adult writer is able to understand what, as a child, she only sensed, that Samuel Kent and Mary Pratt were having an illicit sexual relationship while his first wife was still alive. And, contrary to Constance's claim, that her stepmother was always kind to her. The letter lists a catalogue of abuse. Most interestingly of all, the letter explains that both Constance and William have a condition known as Hutchinsonian teeth. These are serrated incisors, a symptom of congenital syphilis. The implication is that Samuel Kent infected his first wife with syphilis which may have been responsible for her decline into dementia. She then passed the disease onto her youngest children. At 16, Constance Kent was a deeply troubled adolescent. It seems there may have been good reasons why. In Australia, Constance finds some kind of peace. Perhaps to make amends for her crime, she works for a time in a leper's colony and then as the matron of a young offenders unit. She dies in 1944, aged 100. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In the London suburb of Blackheath, on the 26th of February 2011, a passing police patrol spots a car ablaze in a secluded lane. What they discover when the fire is extinguished is far more sinister. The body of a young man trapped in the boot. His charred remains are unidentifiable, but the discovery of his body kickstarts an investigation by the team at Scotland Yard, which soon uncovers a sinister love triangle and the terrible tale of a young man lured by a so-called honey trap, only to lose his life at the hands of those he loved and trusted the most.
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me. John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.